We haven't been in Matthew uh, for a couple of, actually a few weeks because we jumped into the prayer care share, then we got into the being ambassadors, then we talked about Paul. Matthew was writing to a group of Jewish people about the Messiah, and he was revealing Jesus as the divine king. And as he wrote it, he covered in the divine genealogy in chapter 1, chapter 2, the supernatural birth and the, the events surrounding that birth. Chapter 3 was the divine announcer. Chapter 4 was him, his battle with Satan out in the wilderness. 5, 6, and 7, he had his divine teaching where he went in. He exposed the, the, really the bad teaching of the Pharisees. Then he exposed their bad living in chapter 6. And in chapter 7, he exposed what religion will get you. It will get you, depart from me, for I never knew you. That's what religion will get you. And he lays that out. And then in chapters 8 and 9, we see these miracles that authenticate him as the divine king. Chapter 10, he gets his kind of divine royal council, his disciples, and he starts sending them out, delegating to them to go do stuff. And then in chapter 11, we looked at how people respond. The first response we saw was John the Baptist, how John was questioning. But remember, he didn't slam John. Instead of condemning him, what did Jesus say? He said, go tell John what you see and what you hear. In other words, the Word of God and the experiences of faith around God are the testimony to a real and living God and that Jesus is Messiah. And he also exposes the willful unbelief, how people have the testimony of a, of a miracle in front of them. They have the Son of God Himself teaching and they reject Him. And so he pronounces curses on Chorazin, on Bethsaida, and also on Capernaum, where most of his mighty works had been done, and yet they rejected him. But at the end, even after pronouncing that woe on them and that curse, you know what? He gives them an invitation. And he says, come to me all who are, what? Weary. All who are heavy burdened. Were the Jewish people heavy burdened? Were they heavily burdened by the, the laws and the rituals and all the things? Can you imagine every week having to sacrifice? I mean, can you imagine going to the temple? All the, you know, three times a year, the men of Israel had to go to Jerusalem from wherever they were to worship. They had to. They, it didn't matter if they had a death in the family. It didn't matter what was going on. If the crops were in, they had to go and worship at that time of year. There were such burdens, and the Pharisees made them even tighter. They put fences around. Now, some of them with good reason, because the Sabbath was a holy day because God decreed it a holy day. In fact, it was one of the Ten Commandments. One of the Ten Commandments, God said, what? You have the Sabbath, keep it holy. And it was so holy that in the Old Testament that God said... If you go out and you gather sticks to burn a fire on a Sabbath and a guy, you see a guy doing that, you stone him right there on the spot. You kill him. Now that's pretty radical. But God was wanting to set a precedent that His people would rest one day of the week. He modeled it at creation. Six days He created and then He rested. And the rest was always a symbol for us that we were going to be able to rest in Christ. It was always a foreshadowing. And that's what the Pharisees didn't get. What happened is the people of Israel decided not to keep the Sabbaths for a period of time, and God took them into captivity in Babylon. And do you know that they were in captivity the exact number of years that corresponds to the weeks of Sabbath that they missed? I mean, exactly. Now, that's not coincidence. That's God 
revealing that, you know what, he knows things. It's like people go, well, I don't think God's that specific. Do you know there's a king in the Old Testament? It was a pagan king who killed people. This guy cut off people's thumbs. This is in Judges. He cut off their thumbs and their toes, all the people he captured. And when God's people went in and killed him, they did that to him. And he made this statement, I've been repaid for what was done to me. They may not have even known what happened, but, but you know, it, it's kind of like that what goes around comes around because God observes everything. And, and for the children of Israel, they had ignored the Sabbath, so God took them away. So I think the Pharisees, in a good effort, they were trying to protect the Sabbath. So they said, listen, there's not going to be any work. If you do these things, they constitute work. And so they had this long laundry list of things that you could not do that we'll get into in a second. But we kind of did the same thing with with Sundays here. Do you know, I grew up in the South. And I grew up, nothing was open on Sunday because of blue laws. You know what blue laws are? Blue laws were established in Virginia, back in the Virginia colonies, because the colonists said, we don't want people not to be in church on Sunday, so it's going to be illegal for them to conduct any business commerce on Sunday. And that's where Blue Law started. Do you know to this day, there are 13 states that still car dealerships cannot be open on Sunday because it's a Blue Law. And they, did, they just haven't repealed it. They mostly southern states? Yeah. But, but also today on Sunday... You can't hunt in some places because of blue laws that have not been repealed. Most of these blue laws were repealed about 60 years ago. But there's still some on the books. But it was an effort, a lot like the Pharisees, to say, hey, we want people to be in church. For the Pharisees, it was we want people to honor the Sabbath and not work. Do you know that the effect of the Sabbath restrictions by the Pharisees is still in place in Jerusalem? When I'm in Jerusalem and I lead groups over there, Tom, when you go over there, you're going to go on an elevator on a Sabbath and you can't even push a button. They won't let you. They refuse. They make the elevator self-automated on Sabbath days so that you don't have to work to push an elevator button. Now, you think that's ridiculous? But here's the thing. These were 39 things that you could not do that were forbidden on the Sabbath. You couldn't sow, like go and gather crops. You couldn't plow. I mean, I'm sorry, you couldn't plant. You couldn't plow. You couldn't go and gather your crops. You couldn't bind sheaves of wheat. You couldn't thresh. You couldn't winnow, sift. These are all related to farming activities. You couldn't knead. You couldn't bake. You couldn't cut wood. You couldn't uh, wash wood. You couldn't beat wood. You couldn't dye wool. Uh, You couldn't spin wool. You couldn't uh, do real sewing like thread. You couldn't make two threads out of two single pieces of thread. You couldn't make three threads out of two threads. You couldn't separate two threads. You couldn't make a knot. You couldn't untie a knot. You couldn't sew two stitches. You couldn't tear something in order to repair something else. You couldn't catch an animal. You couldn't kill an animal. You couldn't write a letter. You couldn't build something. You couldn't pull anything down. You couldn't light a fire. You couldn't extinguish a fire. You couldn't beat with a hammer. You couldn't carry anything that weighed more than a dried fig. Now think about that. Our Bibles weigh five times or 20 times that probably. But you you couldn't carry those things. And the funny thing is there were were many, many other things you couldn't do. You couldn't walk over 3,000 steps. It was just all legalism 
hypocritical stuff. And they, what they did is they burdened down the people more and they didn't understand that the whole Sabbath thing was a, a shadow of rest. is a, a picture of us resting. It was never meant to be what they made it. And so in this passage of Scripture, what we see is Jesus really exposing that and dealing with that and revealing to us that He's a king who values relationship over rules and ritual. He's a king who values people over his own protection and popularity. And he's also a king who is humble, who brings hope and rest to people. And so as we look at this passage in Matthew 12, let's read it. And then I want to come back and look at how Jesus basically explains to us the Sabbath. And, and how they had mishandled it and really how we should view it. The Sabbath was almost like circumcision. The Sabbath was meant to show people that God's people were different from the people around them. They did not work every day like everything depended on them. They worked and they took a day to rest to show their trust in God. And if you remember back, when God provided food for the Israelites in the wilderness... He said, you will gather food every day except on the Sabbath day. On Saturday, you will gather twice as much and it will not rot. And if they gathered twice as much every other day, it would rot. But it was only on the day before the Sabbath that it didn't rot. And that was a reason they they were to show people that they trusted in God. And if you see a lot of what we see in Scripture, the ceremonial stuff is, is not meant for us to do it to earn God's favor, but it's meant to show us as a people distinct from other people in the world. That we are God's people and we trust Him and we depend on Him. So let's get into the passage, Matthew 12, chapter 12, verse 1. At that time, Jesus went through the cornfields. Now some, some say cornfields, some say grain fields. It's, it's basically, it's a field of of grain of some kind on the Sabbath. His disciples were hungry and they began to pluck ears of corn and to eat it. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said to Him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. And He said to them, Have you not read what David did when he was hungry? And those who were with him, how he entered the house of God and he ate the bread of the presence, which it was not lawful for him to eat, nor for those who were with him, but only for the priest. Or have you not read in the law how on the Sabbath the priest in the temple profane the Sabbath and are guiltless? I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. For the Son of Man is Lord of the Sabbath. Now he went on from there and he entered their synagogue. And a man was there with a withered hand. And they asked him, Is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath? so that they might accuse him. He said to them, Which one of you has a sheep? If it falls into a pit on the Sabbath, will not take hold of it and lift it out. Of how much more value is a man than a sheep? So it is lawful to do good on the Sabbath. Then he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. And the man stretched it out, and it was restored, healthy like the other. But the Pharisees went out, and they conspired against him how to destroy him. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there. And many followed him, and he healed them all. And he ordered them not to make him known, 
This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I've chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased, I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break, and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory, and in his name the Gentiles will hope. May God bless the reading of His Word. In this first little section, I want you to notice right away, it says that at that time, remember at what time? Well, Jesus had just got through saying, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Come to me if you're burdened. So Matthew, by design and by the guidance of the Spirit, is putting this passage dealing with the Pharisees burdening everybody down right on the heels of this. And it's interesting because... How would the Pharisees know the disciples were eating grain from a grain field? How would they know that? They were following Jesus and His disciples. Like, you ever followed, like, you remember growing up when you were a kid and somebody, your, your brothers or sisters, you may not have done this, but, you know, you'd kind of follow your brother to see if they were going to do something to get them in trouble. You know, that's, what, that's what's going on here. The Pharisees are following Jesus. And what they're doing is they're looking for Him. They're looking for Him to mess up. <coughs> And so they see the disciples who were going through grain fields and they're hungry. And they just start plucking the grain. They, they take it, they pull apart the outside and they throw it up, let the chaff blow it away and they take the inside and they eat it. And the Pharisees are going, whoa, 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 wait a minute. Your guys, they are doing something that's unlawful. Now, first of all, was it unlawful? No. According to Deuteronomy, they had every right to walk through a grain field that wasn't theirs and to take food because God in His mercy had ordained. If you're walking through somebody's uh, vineyard or through their grain field, you can take and eat as long as you don't gather and go sell it. You can't put a sickle to it. You can't have a basket and put it in there. But you can take it and eat it. And it was a merciful act to God saying, hey, we're going to be people that care about other people. (coughs) That's my people are going to be people that care. And so... The thing that's interesting to me is they go to Jesus. They don't even approach the disciples. Why don't they go to the leader? They go to the rabbi. So they went to Jesus, and he, in true uh, rabbi tradition, gives them Scripture. And if they were really good rabbis, they should have bought into the argument. Why? Because he's going back to the Old Testament text. He's going back to the writings to say, here's two examples of where people violated ceremonial law in order to do something. Now, in the first case, it was to meet a hunger need in David and his men. In the second case, it was to meet a need of serving God. So those are two examples that he gives of it's okay to violate the Sabbath. So what does that mean? Well, David, back in uh, 1 Samuel, was running away from Saul. And as he was running away from Saul, he, he had already been anointed king. But Saul hated him. Saul wanted to kill him. And so he was trying to kill David. David's running. He comes to the priest. And he, and he comes to the priest. And uh, I think it was uh, Hamalek who was Abiathar's son. Is that right? Am I right on that? So I'm not sure. Yeah. So I think Ahimelech was the priest who was in charge at that time for his dad. And every week they made 12 loaves of bread to signify the 12 tribes of Israel. And it was called the bread of presence or the showbread. And it was to symbolize God's provision for the people of Israel 
and his 12 tribes. And so at the end of the time, they would bring new loaves in, and the only people that could eat the loaves that were taken away were the priests. By God's design in Leviticus. That's what he said. He decreed. So it was a ceremonial law to show something. That it was sacred. Well, David shows up and he's hungry and he goes, we're famished. Can you give it? And he even lied. David even lied to the priest that he was on a mission from Saul, which was a lie because he was running from Saul. But David lied. And, and you know what? You don't see anything in Scripture where God goes... Uh, David was wrong for doing that. You don't see anything in Scripture saying David was wrong to say we're hungry, do you have anything to eat? And after he ate the bread of the presence when Abiathar gave it to him, or I mean Ahimelech gave it to him, there's nothing in Scripture that says that was wrong. And throughout time, they've recognized that that was okay in that situation. So you have a king, David, who's violating the ceremonial law and it's seen as okay. Jesus uses that as example one. Second example he uses is he talks about from Leviticus, there had been a decree to Aaron that, hey, Aaron, I want you to go in on the Sabbath and you are going to do this. You're going to do two sacrifices on the Sabbath. Well, what does a sacrifice require? You have to kill an animal. Mm -hmm. You have to skin an animal. You have to put the animal on there, on the fire. You have to gather the wood. You have to put the fire in the wood, create the fire. So he's doing things that violate the Sabbath Because God told him to. And so there's another, the second example is when God wants you to do something in His service, it's okay to violate ceremonial law. But who's determining that? And the interesting thing about the first example, David didn't take the showbread, he asked. Who made the decision for him to have the showbread? Ahimelech. So in both cases, God was the one who determined when it was okay to break His ceremonial law, right? And that's an interesting point for us to consider because in both cases, Aaron didn't just do it and David didn't demand it. David asked and God granted it. And so, as as you see this, what I see in this little first text because what Jesus says is, I tell you something greater than the temple is here. And He's talking about Himself. He's Messiah. And he says, if you had known what this means, and again, this is the second time he makes this statement. Remember the first time he said it? We looked at it back in uh, Matthew 9. When Levi had come to Christ and the Pharisees were going crazy because he was having his party and Jesus was hanging around prostitutes and tax collectors and he talked about it's the sick that need the doctor, not the righteous. And he said, if you understood that I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Here he says, if you known what this means, you know, I desire mercy, not sacrifice, then you would not have condemned the guiltless. Who's he calling guiltless? His disciples. And why is he calling them guiltless? Who are they with? Who are they spending time with? They're with Jesus, the Son of God. And if He says it's okay, it's okay. The true high priest. Yeah. If Jesus... Listen, if they were walking with Jesus and He said, hey, you guys, you probably shouldn't do that, you think they would have done it? I don't think they would have at that point. And so they had been spending time with Jesus. And Jesus, who values relationship over rules and ritual, says it's okay because they were hungry. And guys, I'm just going to tell you, in our life, sometimes we forget that God values human need. He values service to Himself. 
and mercy over ceremonial things. We've got to remember that we follow a king who values relationship and he follows uh, this love for us over ritual and rules. And every other religion in the world, God, every other one teaches rules. And, and structure is what gets you into favor with God. Only true biblical Christianity teaches that it's what He does, not what we do. And so He lays this out. Well, then it, after this, He gives this illustration. He goes, He doesn't want run away from them, right? What He does is He goes into, it says, their synagogue. Did you notice that? I don't know if you saw that. It says He went from there and entered their synagogue. Now, the synagogues came about after the Babylonian exile. What happened is, prior to that, people would go to the tabernacle to worship. They would go to the temple uh, after the tabernacle, but they would go to this place. Well, they built the synagogues as a place to be taught God's Word and gather as a community of believers. They kept the Torah there. There was a Torah closet there, and there was a seat of Moses where the Torah would be read, and they would have dialogue and talk about it. But it was their place where they would go and talk about things. So Jesus goes into their synagogue and in the other passages over in Mark and in Luke that account for this, it says Jesus actually called the guy with a withered hand up to him. He, he said, come here. So he, he brings this guy up. Well, if Jesus is bringing a guy up, you know what he's doing. He's picking a fight. I love it when Jesus picks a fight. <laughs> Because he, he, you know something good's about to happen, right? So he, he, yeah, yeah. I mean, he, he's picking a fight with these guys. He's not running away from this yeah. stuff. He picks them up and he says, hey. And as he brings the guy over, they see what's happening. And they go, is it lawful to heal on a Sabbath? And what Jesus says is, listen, if you have a sheep that falls into a pit, because what happened is they would have uh, traps for predators. And sometimes the sheep would fall into that trap. But there's not any rabbi that would say it would be wrong to get that sheep out of that, that uh, trap. So he says, isn't a man more valuable than a sheep? And he gets them to think about that. And this is what he says. Stretch out your hand. That's the work he did. Think about that. That's what they condemned him for. He told the man to stretch out your hand. That was the work that Jesus did on that Sabbath. And they said... After he said that, it says the man stretched his hand out. He responded in faith, and his hand was healthy. And it says the Pharisees went out, and they conspired how to destroy him. In another passage, it says they raged in fury against him. And, and what I see in that, that the, the devotional takeaway for me is, we got a king who values people over his own protection and over his popularity. Because he knew what was going to happen, Right? Jesus knew the moment that He healed that guy that they would want to kill Him. And He also knew that His popularity, He was very popular, but His popularity was starting to diminish and the Pharisees and the religious leaders were already starting to plot against Him. And He didn't care about that. Now, why is that important for us to think about today? Well, I want to ask you a question. I want you to think about religious leaders in our country today. All over the world, doesn't matter. When you think of a leader today, a spiritual leader, do they value the people over their own protection and popularity? And if not, why? Why do we have religious leaders and spiritual leaders that have gatekeepers that keep everybody that they're supposed to be shepherding away from? Well, I think it's a real issue in our culture especially because I had one guy uh, tell me that he, he was in church 
And he said, you know, the pastor said something that I wasn't quite sure of, and I just struggled with it really bad. And I wanted to talk to him, so I called, and he said it'd be five and a half months before I could meet with him. <laughs> I think there's a real problem when we have shepherds that are so isolated from the sheep that we don't have interaction. Jesus, there's not one shepherd in the entire world that's more important than Jesus Christ was and is. And Jesus was available. He put Himself out there. And every time the disciples tried to act as gatekeepers, what did He do? He rebuked them for it. Don't, oh, you can't bring children up here. Hey, let the little children come. Let them come. Bartimaeus, shh, he, can't, he doesn't have time for you. Hey, what do you want? Jesus was a man. He, yes, He withdrew to be alone, but He was also a man who was available to people. He was out there. So much so that when Paul stood before Herod uh, in Acts chapter 26, he said, these things have not been done in a corner. Jesus did them everywhere. He was out doing this stuff. It's very rare today to see shepherds out among the people. And it's sad to me. And I think it's a real breakdown in what we see biblically. And I think it's one of the reasons we have a tepid church in this country. You know, when I go to other countries, I don't see that. When I go to India, when I go to Africa, when I go to the Philippines, I see pastors that don't just get up on a Sunday and give a message. I see pastors that are there holding the hand of the dying person in their congregation. I see pastors out helping their neighbor build their fence, out being shepherds, and they know their people. And I think it's a problem. And is that painful? Yes, it is painful. But that's the truth. I do not see Jesus or Paul or Peter or any of the apostles guarding who they are from people. And we, I praise God that we serve a God who cares about people more than His own protection and more than His own popularity. I mean, that is something that makes me want to do anything and everything for this King that I serve. Because He loved me. He has always been available for me because He values people over protection and popularity and then one, one quick thing about this second section here in 9 through 14 in verse 12 i love what he does he doesn't just condemn the pharisees there you know what he does he corrects their theology he says uh it is lawful to do good on the sabbath he makes a declarative statement it is good and okay to do good on the sabbath so that that settles it right that's pretty much settles the issue. So if you have somebody that has a need on the Sabbath, is it okay for you to help meet that need and not go to church that day? Yeah. One, because we don't even celebrate the Sabbath today. We're going to get to that in this last section. But, but the thing is, he corrected their theology, but they weren't teachable. They were not teachable and they didn't respond to this correction, even though he did it. But he healed the guy. He corrected their theology. And then Matthew gives us this last little part in verses 15 through 21 where he shows that Jesus is a king who's humble and he ultimately brings hope and he brings rest. And guys, I'm going to tell you, there's nothing greater than knowing that you can rest in him. There are so many people that feel burdened by the weights of the world, the weight of religion, the weight of different things in their life. And there is rest. You don't have anything to prove to anybody. And, and, and whether you get your identity from your work, from your, your, your 401k or your success in life, 
You don't have to feel the pressure of any of that stuff. And that has helped me so greatly in life because I used to feel growing up, I never, I, I would always kind of mess things up. I was just one of those kids that if I tried to help, I ended up make, making it worse a lot of times. And I always felt rejected for that. I felt because I never could get it right. Every time I'd want to help, I'd just mess things up. And so it made me want to prove myself. And I think that's why I got in the Marine Corps. I think that's why I got in the FBI. I think I wanted to be part of the best. The Marine Corps was the best service. Sorry if you served in a different capacity, but that's what I was taught, that the Marines were the first. And so I wanted to be a Marine. I was taught the FBI was the elite, so I wanted to be an FBI agent. And, and there was a part of me that was driven to prove something until God showed me, He showed me, that, you know what, Doug, you can rest in me. You don't have to prove anything anymore. And he's, he gives this passage from Isaiah in Isaiah 42. And it's interesting that he says he healed everybody, and then he told them not to tell people. And he said the reason he told them, it said, was to fulfill what was spoken through Isaiah. He's not going to go shouting in the streets. He doesn't want this to be a popularity contest. He walked away from more crowds than he walked into. What he cared most about is that people really understood that he came to bring rest and hope to people, not that he was going to bring a military overthrow of Rome, which is what they were looking for. And so many people in our culture today and around the world are looking to Jesus for the wrong reasons. They think that if they come to Jesus, then their bank account's going to be okay. If they come to Jesus, then their marriage is going to work out because their marriage is in shambles. If they come to Jesus, then the th bad things aren't going to happen to them anymore. And that's simply not true. The reason people come to Christ and the reason He wants us to understand that we come to Him is because we come to Him for rest and hope. Even in the midst of the bad things. And I can promise you, He does that. But here's what I want you to know in this passage. There's a couple of words. The word justice is in here. He says that He will proclaim justice. That word means judgment to the Gentiles, to the nations. And He also says He brings justice or judgment to victory. He has the victory. That's where our rest is. He's he, on the cross, guys, when Jesus died on the cross and He said, it is finished, that word meant the debt was paid for every sin, every bad thought, every bad thing you would ever do or ever could do. So, Tom, when Jesus died on the cross, how many sins had you committed at that point in your life? Zero, right? Every sin He paid for in your life was future, right? So when you sin now, when you sin tomorrow, it's already been covered at the cross. But we don't live like that sometimes. Sometimes when we sin, we feel defeated and we feel like, oh, we forget that we're in this earthly body and these earthly bodies struggle. And what we should do when we sin is we come back to the cross and we thank Him. And when we recognize what He did for us, it should make us humble. That's why He says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. But he's, He says this justice here to bring hope he's saying i'm bringing it to the gentiles now that really had been taught in scripture before but the jewish people didn't get it here and he's making another statement here because what's fixing to happen and what we're going to get into next week and from now on is we're going to see the jews were the chosen people of god to take this message of hope to the world but they abused it and thought it was only for their own consumption 
And we fall guilty of the same thing in the church of Christ today. We think it's only about getting in the door and not being the vehicle to bless the rest of the world. So that's why when you have an encounter with a John or with a Donnie or with somebody out there like Ronnie uh, McKinnon, who was a black guy who led a KKK guy to Christ. I shared that. Did I share that with you guys? Ronnie McKinnon comes to the morning swat at at, uh, the beach. Uh, Two weeks ago, he's out at his pool in an apartment complex, and there's a guy that he's seen there for the last two years. He's a guy, a white supremacist. He's got KKK and a swastika tattooed on his body and a rebel flag on his right shoulder. And every time Ronnie comes out and he sees Ronnie, he puts his shirt on. But when Ronnie goes away, he takes it off and he talks that white supremacist stuff around the people. And so Ronnie, because we, you know, we've been talking about this stuff and Ronnie just felt emboldened two weeks ago to share the gospel with him. So he shared the gospel. And you know what happened? The guy trusted Christ began weeping, weeping. The guy's so overwhelmed, he has to get up and go to the bathroom. And he comes, it's why he's gone. His girlfriend says, thank you. I was ready to leave him over this white supremacist junk. Thank you for doing that. Well, it's one thing to just say it at a table outside by a pool, but for the next two weeks, for the last two weeks, he's come to Ronnie's church, which is an all-black church. He's come with Ronnie and his girlfriend to this church for two weeks in a row. This past week, three days ago, four days ago, he called and said, Ronnie, my mom wants to talk to you. And Ronnie's like, okay. <laughs> and, and so his mom called Ronnie and said, Ronnie, she called him uh, Will. His first name's William. She said, Will, because that's, that's what the people know him there. I know him as Ronnie, but said, Will, I just want you to know that three weeks ago, one week before you shared with my son, I prayed, I'm a believer, and I prayed and I asked that God would send a black man to lead my son to Christ. One week before that happened. Now, Ronnie's been in that apartment complex two years. And one week after his mom prayed that prayer, Ronnie led him to Christ. It's not coincidence. God brought rest to that guy's girlfriend, brought rest to him, even brought rest to Ronnie. Can you imagine every time you come out seeing a person wearing tattoos that said they hate you? Every time you encounter... I mean, see, we don't really struggle with that for the most part. We go through life as... I mean, to be honest with you, we go through... We don't have to deal with that. But I can't imagine every time Ronnie went to the pool and he saw that guy, he thought, there's somebody who hates me. I've had people in my life that hate me, and I've thought about that when I encounter them. It's awkward. But can you imagine every time to have that person live right next to you and see them, their friends, you're always wondering if they're talking about you, wondering if they're going to hurt you because of the history of some of the stuff that's happened, and yet to have the boldness to say to him, God loves you, and God wants you to know him and to see him do that. That was incredible rest. And so... We have a king who's humble and brings rest. So why do we celebrate Sundays today? Why do we not celebrate a Sabbath? Well, the the Sabbath was a ceremonial law. 
Even as part of the Ten Commandments, it was ceremonial. It's the only one that's ceremonial. The rest of them deal with people and with God relationally. But the Sabbath was a ceremonial depiction of rest that was a foreshadowing of what Christ would bring. That's why in Hebrews chapter 4, it says when Christ came, we received rest. And so we haven't celebrated uh, the Sabbath in the New Testament. You don't see it in Acts. You don't see it in the New Testament letters. In fact, Paul makes a statement in Romans. I think it's Romans chapter 14. Some people want to still celebrate the Sabbath because of tradition. It's okay. Let them do it. But you don't have to. In Colossians chapter 2, he says the same thing. Let no person tell you that you have to celebrate one specific day. And yet people do it. You're going to work on Sunday, Jim? You really going to do that? Wow. That's Ralph. Are you you cutting the grass on Sunday? Are you kidding me? That's a holy day. See, people do that stuff all over our country. And, and Paul says in Colossians very clearly, let no one tell you that one day is more special than another. He makes that very clear. And so why do we celebrate on Sundays? Well, because there's reference in the Bible. When was Jesus resurrected? We believe on Sunday, the first day of the week. In Acts chapter 20, verse 2, it says that the disciples met together on the first day of the week. In uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 16, verse 2, it said Paul giving instruction, take up collections when you come together on the first day of the week. So there was a pattern of worshiping on that first day of the week that was set by the apostles that we've continued. Now, is it okay that somebody wants to worship God and have a, a worship service on a Thursday? Yes, why? Because there's no stipulation to when you do it. That's just a pattern that was set. But yet in our culture, we do tend to elevate Sunday. Even if we don't believe it's the Sabbath, there is a tendency to elevate that day when, as you said, every day is actually the Sabbath of rest that we know the Messiah. Exactly. We live in rest. But, and it's okay that people, listen, Truett Cathy, who, uh, the founder well, yeah, of Chick-fil-A, right. he said, listen, we're going to celebrate one day of the week where our employees can go have a day of rest and we're going to do it on Sunday because that's when the majority of people in this country do it. And you know what? God, I believe, has honored and blessed that restaurant beyond measure. There was a company called Mastercraft Boats that during World War II, I believe it was World War II, they were uh, kind of commissioned by the government to come in and help make parts for military parts. And they said, we will work on every day but the Sunday. Oh, you got to work on Sunday. It's a war. They said, we will do the work on six days a week. And they did. And they outproduced other companies, multiple companies, what they did in six days a week because I believe God honored it. I believe God honored those things as a testimony to the fact that He loves it when we say we trust God. We trust God. We don't have to work our fingers to the bone every day because God is the one who provides. And, and our, our standards are different from the world's standards. So no, we, we're not required to keep a Sabbath. But we should have a day of the week I think we worship. And we should always understand that we rest in Christ. We don't have to work our way to heaven, and we don't even have to work our way in growing in Him. All we have to do is say, God, I want to know You better and trust that He will do it. That's what Paul says in Galatians when he says, are you so foolish that think you began by the Spirit that you're going to 
continue on in your works. No, it's the Spirit of God that grows us, and He just wants us to have faith and trust in Him. So that's really the essence of of this passage in chapter 12. And guys, listen, let me give you one quick application today uh, before we close. God mercifully has dealt with us throughout time. We all should be dead. I mean, we've all committed sin in our life from the time we've been born to today that should have brought our death and we haven't been dead. He's allowed us to live. That's His mercy. And even in Scripture, you see His progressive mercy. Look at marriage. In the Old Testament, you know what happened to people who committed adultery? They were killed. But what did God do in His mercy? He said, no. You know what? Moses permitted divorce. Moses permitted divorce. Who permitted? It was God who permitted it through Moses for people to divorce. Why? Because Jewish men would put away women for any and every reason. And so God said, it's not right that these women should have to suffer because these men are just disappointed with them. And so He mercifully allowed for them to be remarried. The woman at the well got remarried five times. Sometimes people look at her as a harlot. Sometimes I think she's more of a victim. That she had been married five times. She had been put away five times for whatever reason. But all I'm saying is look at the progression of God's mercy. In the New Testament, he took it even further. Paul, in his instruction, said, hey, if you're married to an unbeliever and that unbeliever wants to leave you and they leave, you're free. You can remarry what I want you to see is the mercy of God as it is unfolding. And that's something, guys, that we should, what, you, what we should walk out that door today asking is, am I more concerned with sacrifice or more concerned with mercy? Because that was the ultimate failure of the Pharisees here. When they walked out, when they saw people, they did not look with merciful eyes. They looked with condemning eyes. And they look to tie burdens on people. And I don't want to be like that. And sometimes I can. I'm so passionate and I get so fired up about things. I have to be really careful. And I've had to really reflect in my own life about times I've been judgmental. Because I'm not the judge. None of us are the judge. God is the judge. We're not. And, and what I see in Scripture more than anything is mercy. Doesn't mean we shouldn't have standards of truth. Doesn't mean we shouldn't preach those truths. But our attitude should be one as we've been given mercy, so we should dispense mercy to people. Chris, will you close our time in prayer?